0: Hey everyone this is dr dane donahue and 10 out of 10 doctors recommend the more than a club podcast so i hope you're listening to the next episode welcome to the more than a club podcast with Marty Kuprian and Bill Lane. Welcome back to the More Than a Club podcast, season three, episode seven. We're excited to be back in the studio and ready to take on yet another new and meaningful guest.
1: As usual, we're very grateful to all of our listeners and fans. We could not have pulled this off without you. All your advice and your guidance, feedback, it keeps us going. Please keep the feedback coming our way and help us spread the word about the show and these fantastic guests. Another one today, right, Bill? Exactly. A good
0: friend, excellent coach from Gettysburg, PA, former coach at Penn State. We'll get into all this. Coach Peter Turner. Coach, thanks for being with us.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Certainly an honor to be here with this uh, who's who of coaches you've had before me. I'm I'm pretty excited to be a part of it. Uh, I think what you guys are doing is phenomenal for the game and to grow the sport and to provide information on several different topics. So I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thanks. Before we get
0: rolling, could you tell our listeners so I don't do too much talking here how we know each other?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think without question, you know, getting into college coaching, you, you look around the country and you look for um, programs that are consistent winners and you know you're going to get talented kids from. And there's no doubt that, um, you know, throughout my coaching career, we, we've we attacked a number of um, LaSalle guys that were your former players. So um, that kind of started our initial um, getting to know each other, just, just recruiting your guys from um, – you know, the Forrester brothers, all the way up to a Matt Rambo to Penn State and and so on and so forth. Uh, and then we had, you know, what I've, what I still think is one of the best experiences I've ever, I've ever had as a coach alongside you was the, uh, the USA U-19 experience um, that we shared in like the 2015-16 timeframe where, um, you know, we had a mixture of college and high school coaches for the first time take over that charged to win a gold medal. And, you know, that was a lengthy process, uh, you know, a year plus of evaluations and meals together and, you know, traveling around and just hanging out and bouncing different ideas off of one another. So I think our relationship certainly grew throughout that entire process and has stayed very strong and connected since.
0: Yeah. I think uh, you saved me like nine times with too many men on the field or the box <laughs> getting screwed up. So yeah, you, you were really I had to good coach with- the
2: man down team, so I didn't want to go man down. You know what I mean?
0: I'd count and count and you'd turn and say, you're good. You're, you're good, Bill. We got this. (laughs) So, well, for those unfamiliar with coach Turner's achievements, here we go. You're
1: going to make me say Kennebunk, huh? Okay. A Kennebunk Maine native where he played Kennebunk high school for Charlie Birch coach. Turner then went on to Springfield college where he played for legendary coach Keith Bugby. There, he earned his undergraduate degree in sports management and worked as a graduate assistant in 2004 and 2005, earning a master's degree in physical education.
0: As a player, he helped lead the pride to three NCAA tournament appearances and as a two-time captain garnered all New England honors. He was one of two intercollegiate men's lacrosse players to collect National Strength and Conditioning Association
1: All-American recognition. Peter then served as head coach at Wheaton College for the 2006 and 2007 seasons. During his first seasons, the Lions enjoyed their best campaign in school history, going 10-6 and en route to a berth in the ECAC Division II Championship game. From 2008 to 2010, Toner served as the associate head coach at Bryant University under the direction of coach Mike Pressler. There he served as a defensive coach and recruiting coordinator. He helped guide the Bulldogs through their transition to Division I as the team went a combined 22 and 10 during its first two seasons at the nation's top level.
0: For the last 11 years, Coach Turner has been at Penn State, including the last eight as associate head coach. Peter served as a recruiting coordinator and guided the team's defensive effort, both of which contributed to unprecedented successes for the Nittany Lions. In 2019, Penn State set a school record for wins captured the Big Ten regular season and tournament titles for the first time, posted its first-ever victory over the University of Maryland, and advanced to the NCAA Finals. Coach Toner helped Penn State reach the NCAA playoffs in 2013, 2017, and 19. For his efforts, Coach Toner was named Assistant Coach of the Year by the Intercollegiate Men's Lacrosse Association. In
1: 2016, he won a gold medal as a defensive coordinator for the U19 USA team, and is now the head coach at D3 Power Gettysburg College. Coach Toner and his wife, Mary, have three sons, Tripp, Campbell, and Marcus. Coach Toner, wow. I could tell you're ready to talk to us. Do we miss anything, or should we just get to it?
2: Uh, I I think you nailed it, guys, and I know I had a lot of help uh, along the way, so I appreciate the kind words and um, just excited to get going here and, and break down tonight's session with you guys. Right, you know, I got to ask, National Strength and Conditioning
0: Association All-American. Come on.
2: Yeah, you believe yeah, that? I can. It was myself and uh, this defenseman from UMass at the time. Um, he was an Ohio kid. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was uh, an absolute beast. And I, and apparently, this has been going on in Division III athletics for a long time, and I didn't really know about it. And, you know, my strength coach at the time submitted my name, and it just had to do with some of what you were doing academically, some of your leadership skills, some of your strength and conditioning. Um, if you saw me now as a forty-year-old, I don't know if I would pass the pass the bar there. But uh, yeah, I was one of two. It was, it was pretty wild, very unexpected.
0: Not just bench press and squats, huh? A lot more than that.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, at Springfield, that was pretty much all we did. That maybe some hang <laughs> <food> here there. <laughs> That's great. All right, Coach, get us rolling here on uh, youth sport hot topic.
1: Today, we're going to talk about just loving the game. Coach Toner once said in an interview, and I quote, my first experience with lacrosse was at a polar bear lacrosse camp at Bowden college in probably fourth or fifth grade. I played football and hockey, but I knew instantly that this sport was for me and I never looked back. I started playing organized lacrosse in sixth grade. So tell us more about it. Love, love the first time you played.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, the fact that you guys had a hard time saying Kenny Buck, Maine would prove to most (laughs) most people on the call that it's, it's not known as a hotbed of lacrosse. Uh, and it certainly wasn't back in, you know, early nineties when I was growing up. And, um, really my first opportunity to see the game played at a high level was up at Bowdoin college, a division three program in the NESCAC coach McCabe, who also just happened to be a Springfield alum, had a, had a program up there and was doing a really nice job. And, and, you know, we went in to watch these guys, um, practice for a little bit. And then we knew we were going to do a skill session for the first time after. And I'm seeing these, these big athletic kids running around in their indoor facility and zipping the ball around and playing at full speed. It it was a a helmeted sport, sticks flying around, guys beating each other up. And as a football hockey guy at the time, I'm like, man, this is a sport that I have to start playing. Um, I was definitely one of those guys that kind of got pushed out of flag football a little bit early or pushed out of basketball a little bit early because I fouled too much. And I just thought, you know what, this is probably the best uh, fit for me. And I just fell in love with it, with it instantly. Uh, we went through that clinic and learned how to catch, throw, pick up ground balls, all the fundamentals of the sport that we all preach and coach every single day. And uh, I've been in it ever since. And and thank God I went up to that, that camp and we had an opportunity and um, started to pick up the game at that point in time.
0: You know, when we look at the game today and all the club teams in high school, I just think sometimes we get caught up in, in other important aspects. And we forget why we love the game. And I remember dealing with parents who are angry about playing time or um, just different their weight room sessions and our wins and losses when in fact, it's just a beautiful game. And that's why we play it because we love being with people, love being taking a journey, trying to accomplish something for the season. And so when I look back now that I've retired, that's what I miss the most. I just miss being with a group of men And we're taking a journey, which we know begins on a certain date, ends on a certain date, and we're trying to be the best people, lacrosse players, team that we can be. What is it that you love so much about the game at the highest level where you are now at Penn State, Gettysburg, and all your other stops? Yeah, I would
2: agree with you, coach. I mean, just being a part of a team in anything, um, I think is really important. I mean, like I said, I didn't have the pressure of club lacrosse, going to lacrosse camps, playing all summer long. So it really never was that important to me or my parents that I was out and about and trying to stay up with guys that um, quite frankly, were eventually going to go play division one lacrosse at an extremely high level. I just didn't grow up around that. So um, when we played, we did it for fun. We knew that we could go out on a field on a, on a brick wall. I and mean, I can remember Kenny bunk high school. It was a huge brick wall, right, right in the front of the, the place when you pull in and we would spend our entire PE class, on the wall, shooting on the goals and being creative and and just having fun with it. And we really didn't have anybody to live up to at that point. We were just kids playing the sport of lacrosse and we loved it. And, uh, you know, again, I went to high school with a bunch of guys that played as well, but none of us were were very good at the time. And it was just a a fun sport to pick up. And again, having a football hockey background and being able to play another sport that had a stick and a helmet and gloves and was physical um, made it really fun for us at a young age. And we weren't very good. So we had to keep working on it to be better uh, to eventually uh, compete at a higher level.
0: I also love the people. Lacrosse has great people. You know, you don't appreciate it when you're young. At least I didn't. But I had men like Mike Thomas at Calvert Hall, Terry Corcoran at Washington College, Dave Cottle, of course, my friend, Tony Resch. You've You've met and been mentored by some amazing people. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about some of the names we mentioned earlier they may not know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to youth lacrosse, I mean, I remember uh, my coach back then, a guy by the name of Josh Graham. He played at UNE. Um, Absolute lacrosse junkie, still is, still goes up to Placid. He's probably playing in the old man division. And and he made it so much fun to go to practice every day and to to love the game. He would suit up and practice with us as much as he possibly could just because he just loved being out there. Um, You know, going through high school, I had two different uh, coaches uh, initially, Dave Cabot and – um, Charlie Barker. We were a club sport to begin with, so our first two years of high school, we weren't even considered a varsity sport. And then my junior and senior year, we we finally moved into varsity. I got the uh, the privilege to play for a coach named Charlie Birch, who, if you know anything about high school across in the state of Maine, I mean he's the guy. Um, he was at Cape Elizabeth forever, um, won nine state championships, and they were they were it back then in the state of Maine. And then he all of a sudden transferred over to our high school um, our junior year. And it just so happened that he had two sons by the name of Nick and Pat Myers, who were my two of my best friends. So um, to grow up with those guys, to to play a lot of lacrosse on our own, to have fun with it, and then to be mentored by um, those youth and high school coaches really, really made me enjoy the game. And it really made me have an appreciation for the passion it takes to be a coach, because that's what they had to have with a bunch of guys that were just OK at lacrosse, weren't super talented, but we loved the game and we wanted to show up and practice and play hard every chance that we got. So it was Definitely a, a treat to play for those guys.
1: Peter, I'm going to save my question about uh, some of your best team journeys for later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll move on to our X and O insight of the week for coaches. And it's going to be really just the simplicity of one-on-ones. And you and Coach Leahy were getting all fired up talking about <laughs> it pre-show, um, going one-on-one with each other. So uh, Coach Leahy, Coach Toner, tell us more.
0: So in prepping for the show, I had read in a separate article that you love one-on-ones. I love (laughs) one-on-ones let's get after it. Why do you, why is that your
2: favorite drill or one of them? I mean, I say to our guys every single day at every practice, every drill, it's like, it's all about who can win the point of attack and the game has gotten to a point now where it's the point of attack is constantly changing. It's the wings it's up top, it's below the goal line, it's above the goal line And, and who can ultimately win the point of attack over and over and over again. Um, to either be successful on defense to avoid sliding and supporting or to be successful on offense to get to areas of the field where you know you can increase your chance to score. So if you can be great in the one-on-one game um, from any area of the field, if you can be great in the two-on-two game from any area of the field, you can win a lot of battles uh, one way or the other. Um, I think if if it comes down to the point of attack on either side of the ball and you can't win that consistently – it's going to be a really long day for you. Um, You know, so we we do them every practice. We encourage our guys to do a couple extras after practice. You know, we talk to our short stick D middies all the time about the fact that you're going to get picked on in a game for 60 straight minutes. So if you're not putting a lot of your effort day in and day out, practicing and practice out on your one-on-one ability, you're probably not going to have as much success as you should. And they should love to do them. You know, you should practice to a point where you've gotten in what you need practice ends. And then all the defensemen are like, all right, let's do some one-on-ones and the attackmen are doing the same thing. And the middies are doing the same thing because they just love that one-on-one combat and, and the the skill and the technique it takes to, to win that point of attack.
0: So when you say point of attack for our listeners, what are you exactly you're referring to the moment that defense and offense? collide? Yeah. Like
2: just where, you know, lacrosse has gotten no a point, very much like basketball where you're trying to dictate matchups so much. And as an offensive team, you can certainly dictate where you want to dodge from and who you want to dodge against. And, you know, most teams go at the short sticks to start and uh, you know, they take them where they want to dodge for the most part behind the goal to the wing. Uh, maybe they're up in the four position. And they want to attack the alleys, however they decide to do it. And and really that's where the point of attack starts. Um, so to get the defense moving and to get the offense creating, you gotta you gotta have one one win or the other. Um, so again, if you can consistently do that on both sides of the ball, I think you can really either create a lot of sliding uh, for your offense to then take advantage of through the unsettled game, or defensively save yourselves a lot of headaches by uh, by having to play man down or zone principles off the ball because you're not having to slide a whole heck of a lot. So the best teams in college across that I've ever seen have unbelievable cover defensemen. You have an elite long you know long stick most likely. You have an elite number one close defenseman who rarely gets beat, and you have elite short sticks that don't need a whole lot of support, and those are the teams year in and year out that are the best defensive teams that put themselves in a position to win a lot of games. Um, And on the flip side, if you have offensive players that are just unbelievably athletic and can win a matchup against a long pole, against a short stick, from the wing, from behind, from X, it doesn't matter. Those are usually the best offensive teams in the country because they create so much opportunity for their teammates when they can run by somebody and, and win that point of attack to either score or draw slides.
0: In our USA journey together, I noticed the Canadians attack from the wings more than you know I was used to here in the United States. Was that hard to get used to as a defensive coordinator in our journey?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that I've always thought about, if, if you're not winning the, the point of attack with with one-on-one, so say a Canadian goes out to the wing and he wants to dodge one-on-one, he can't necessarily athletically win that matchup. That's where they always bring the second guy to the party, and you're still trying to win the point of attack, but now you're, you're having two guys work together to do it versus one on an island by himself. Um, and their stick skills are so advanced that they can – put enough pressure on you on the defensive side where you might have to slide or hedge off your matchup, but they can get the ball out of their stick so quickly that they exploit that moment in time when it becomes a, a two on one in the favor of the offense. So, um, you know, th- that's usually what teams go to. It's like, Hey, we're not winning our matchups one-on-one against this particular defense. Now we have to win them two on two. And if you can win them two on two, either at the point of attack or you can win them off the ball with rotations or exchanges or or whatnot, um, you can usually, you know, start to create some different looks uh, uh, for the defense to have to defend.
0: We were smiling pre-show as we went through how I was going to go tonight, and we said one-on-ones, two-on-twos, four-on-fours, a little riding and clearing, and that's a great practice. Absolutely. Walk us through that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so again, um, the, the one-on-one part of it, we've kind of hit on the two-on-two part of it, just the skills that come into place, um, the location of the picks, the ability to change matchups to figure out how the defense is going to play it. Are they going to switch? Are they going to try to fight through? Um, You know, you can create a lot of offense just with two guys, knowing that you you have six, you know, when you get into the half field. Four-on-fours are phenomenal to teach a little bit of everything. They teach one-on-one play, offensively and defensively. They teach two-on-two play. They teach you how to play adjacent to the ball on offense and defense. So, you know, clearing space seeing a teammate's dodging right at you. And if you just stand there and plug up that gap, maybe you've, you've kind of killed his opportunity to get to the goal. Um, or if you're hedging a little bit more than you should defensively, maybe you give him an easy adjacent pass to a shot. Um, so I think kind of combining all of those things together and um, in, in a process of building up from one to two to four allows you to really hit on all different um, types of offenses and offensive and defensive skills um the riding and clearing will will always probably end up in our practice in some way shape or form you know the ability to get the ball back on defense and secure it and get it down at the offensive end of the field more than 80 to 85 percent of the time is not easy to do um but with a lot more defensive stops with the shot clock now a lot more clearing a lot more riding opportunities you, you got to be buttoned up there because you can't just you know rely on horns you can't rely on drop back rides you can't rely on you know only having to clear the ball you know four or five times a quarter um that ball goes back and forth a lot more now and based on the shot clock it's forced teams to really pick up the pace in both um and nothing worse than getting a stop on defense thinking you're going to clear the ball get it to your offense and then all of a sudden you're turning turning around go right back on defense because you fail to clear so that's definitely a staple of practice every single day for us
1: Love it. Uh, What else are you and your coaches looking for when you do, you know, simple one-on-one drills? And are there other ways that you tweak a one-on-one or two-on-two drill that uh, might help our coaches listening?
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that we've incorporated is just forcing guys to have to defend in areas of the field that they're most uncomfortable. So the close defenseman who always defends the dodge from X, I mean, that That's kind of a little old school, in my opinion. A lot of teams are probably going to look at that matchup from an offensive perspective and say, do we want our best attackman dodging against their best defenseman over and over and over again and getting the crap kicked out of them and probably not winning that matchup a whole heck of a lot? Um, Or do we want to make that guy have to play off the ball? Or do we want to make that guy have to defend up top versus down below or defend from the wing versus right at X? Um, again, when you get really comfortable defending the same area of the field over and over and over again, um, you know, that makes it, I wouldn't say easy, but it definitely makes it an advantage to the defense, in my opinion. But one of the things we've tried to do is is find ways to put guys in positions of the field where they're uncomfortable, um, where they don't defend as often, and we've tried to put them at a disadvantage. So we utilize nubs a a bunch and essentially turn everybody into a short stick and make that guy that's used to covering the ball at X – with a six foot stick in his hand. Now he's got a a three foot stick in his hand and he still has to defend that number one attackman, And maybe he gets at a little bit more of a disadvantage more often. Um, And it's okay to get beat in those situations. Those are great opportunities to learn. Um, And then when you do put that big stick back in your hand, you feel a lot more comfortable. And a lot of cases that'll, that'll help improve your angles and your goal line defense and whatnot. The game, in my opinion, has become so, so positionless where these attackmen and middies—they're above the goal, they're below the goal, they're on the wings. Like, there's really yeah. no one-trick ponies anymore, um, and you got to be able to defend all those areas. And if you say to a coach, "Like, well, I'm just not good at defending above the goal line," that—that's not going to fly. You—you you have to. Um, so, to be able to do that during practice every uh, every day is important.
0: Yeah, I love p- positionless. A couple years ago, Coach Tierney was saying, "I like your guy offensively. You know, he's just not a right-handed midi." I think I might use him as a D midi, and you've been using him as an attackman, Bill. I get three guys in one. I think we're going to give it a shot. I'm like, (laughs) see, I don't want to hear I'm a left handed midi anymore. You got to be able to be an offensive player, just period and understand everything kind of that we're up to. I love that when you said old school, we had a college staff come over to LaSalle today to sit down with Coach Resh and I, and I was saying to them, they were asking, you know, where should the guys be dodging one-on-one? And I said, the same thing you just said. I said, you got to be able to take them offensively to positions that the defense isn't comfortable places they don't do in their club teams all summer. Take them out to the wing, take them to the corner, make the defenseman look back behind them out, out on an Island, say who has me here. I said, it's so rote for so many guys now defensively, just as they run around playing the same two, three, one offense, when you take them someplace new, they have to figure that out. And so does their team
2: behind them. And, yeah. I, and, and then, then all of a sudden the same you, thing. you do that. And then you bring a, a, a pick over there too. And then it's really like, Oh boy, what are we dealing with here? So I think it's uh, it's good for both sides. It's good for all your offensive players, in my opinion, to be able to dodge from different areas, different angles. they got to be able to sweep. They have to be able to roll back. They have to be able to dodge from behind the goal line. They have to be able to wing dodge. And defensively, you have to do the same, because if you're a sliding defense, you're going to recover into the crease, and then you might get bumped to the backside wing, and then all of a sudden you're being dodged. And if you're uncomfortable there, now you're now you're exposed. So I think the more that you can just force your guys to have to defend different areas of the field, Uh, in one-on-ones and two-on-twos, the better you'll be. And I think that's where four-on-fours brings
0: it all into kind of one giant theory, right? You have your one-on-ones, you have your two-on-twos within the four-on-fours, and then the four-on-fours create so many kind of unexpected situations. I think I did most of my teaching in four-on-four situations when we had to blow the whistle and stop because the guys were like, "Uh, I haven't seen this before, coach. How did that unfold the way it is? And when you do one-on-ones or two-on-twos, they're pretty rote. They kind of end up the same way. But four and fours, all of a sudden, you have people inverting, going from the wings. You have people falling down. You have a much more conceptual concept of what's happening where you can yeah. teach more.
2: And it's the, it changes your slide packages a little bit. Like you can you can dictate four and fours to be a crease sliding drill, or it can turn into an adjacent sliding drill. And you can start it at X and then you know work on sliding below the goal line, or you can keep everybody in a box or a diamond and say, okay, now it's going to be all perimeter offense and defense, and you got to play off of that. So I would agree. There's so many different things you can get out of a four-on-four four drill and so many different ways you can attack it to, to force your guys to make decisions at rapid speed.
0: You're getting me all fired up, Coach. I'm ready to, like, shoot out <laughs> west. Yeah, when's the next practice? Yeah, watch one-on-ones. We're yeah. going to move to our third section, which is really for parents which is, and players, for, it's is culture building. And I ran into a Division One coach at our last tournament, and he said, I love the podcast show. You guys do so much. That's good but how about talking about being a great teammate? He said, I think you could do a whole show on this. So any initial thoughts on what you're looking for in a young player and what it means to be a good teammate?
2: Yeah, the one term that we use here and I've used for a long time to be a great teammate is is just the word sacrifice. Um, And that could cover a lot of different things. Um, Sometimes you're gonna have to sacrifice playing time. Sometimes you might need to sacrifice whether or not you're the first in line at a team meal. Um, sometimes you may need to sacrifice sleep because you have a morning workout. Um, sometimes you're going to have to sacrifice a Saturday night because there's a, a big game coming up on Tuesday and it's like fellas are staying in tonight. So um, I think the more guys you have in your program that are willing to sacrifice for the good of everybody, the better off you're going to be. Um, I think it's also really important to, to provide visuals. I mean, we're coaching 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old young men, and you say, hey, be a great teammate. And they look back and you're like, yeah, okay coach, well, what does that mean? And it's like, well, here's a vi- here's a visual of what it means. You can point out a guy at practice uh, that maybe carries the balls off the field, even though he's a senior captain or moves the goals, even though he's a, you know, he's a guy that's on your first midfield um, to get everybody set up for practice. You can provide videos, you can provide articles. There's a lot of teaching moments that you can provide to your players to give them visuals. And I think a lot of kids are visual learners. And if they see it and you point it out over and over and over again, it's a lot easier for them to grasp it versus the blanket of like, hey, just be a great teammate. Um, Because a lot of kids don't know what that means because maybe they haven't been one before or maybe they haven't been one consistently enough throughout their career where they get what that means. Um, And some kids are the other side with they're just great teammates and they'll, they'll do anything for the team no matter what. So uh, I think the more you can provide visuals and and ha- really hammer that the purpose of a sacrifice to a team is really important.
0: We used to say at LaSalle, it's not about you. It's not about, you. it's not about your playing time. It's not about you're running on the first midfield. I often said to them, you can't come talk to me about your playing time. You can come talk to me. Let's talk about how you can best serve the team to start. I'm a yeah. good guy. After we get finished talking about how you can serve the team, then I'll ask you how it's going for you. We're not going to start that way. And you know yeah, I, I know that... uh,
2: I know coach Tambroni would say that all the time and I've taken this with me it's it's what's what's in it from me versus what's in it for me. Um, and I think that's a really good skill cue to say like what can I provide to help the cause here versus what can I take from it to make my life better. Um, and I think the more guys you have that think that way the better off your team will be. And pointing out examples to the guys I love that we would
0: we would have a weekly meeting at LaSalle and coach Resch would ask which one of your teammates did something special for another teammate. So you, you were really nominating indirectly a teammate who did something good for someone else. So Tommy would stand up and say, you know, I saw John tutoring Fred in Spanish and that's why Fred to practice this week because of him. And then that would get like an, an honor, right? A sticker, but it was never about the goals you scored, the assist you had. It was about how you served and helped someone else. And you're right in doing so you made a sacrifice that young man who set aside time to tutor his teammate sacrificed his
2: own time. Yeah. hundred percent. Couldn't agree with you more coach. And I think that stuff's all really important. And uh, you could probably talk more about that and get that ironed out than X's and O's. And you could probably get the same result. Um, If you got guys that are just bought into your culture, they're bought into their teammates, they're willing to sacrifice, they're willing to do what's best for the greater good. You might not be able to catch and throw as well, but you probably uh, can still win just as many games because, you know, you got teammates battling for one another every time they step on the field.
0: And I learned that firsthand along with you on our USA team, guys really made a sacrifice. When you put on the red, white and blue, it wasn't about you. It was about our country and about your brothers. And so many guys just stepped aside with their egos or the position they played at their college or their high school and just did what you and the staff asked. That was really impressive to watch. Well, coach, it's
2: funny. I wrote down some notes before I, uh, I I came to this this tonight. And two names I wrote down are Mac O'Keefe mm-hmm. and Jared Bernhardt. And you remember their roles on that team? Like Jared Bernhardt ran on our second/slash third midfield, and he was the best player in college across last year. And <laughs> Mac O'Keefe played man up only and didn't even play in a rotation. And he's the all-time leading goal scorer in all of College Across. And those guys never said a word about why am I not playing why am I on the second midfield why am I only on extra man and they're two of the very best players in the game today um and they were they were backups on that team there's several several other guys that did it too I mean Austin Sims was running on Princeton's first midfield line offensively and he was a d midi for us um so yeah I couldn't agree with you more you know guys buying into their roles and accepting their roles is absolutely huge
0: and for Austin Sims, his answer was, yes, sir, whatever the country and the team needs. And then we, and then he was selected by his teammates as captain. Yep.
2: Yeah.
0: The whole thing was just a great example to watch.
1: I love it. Uh, but let's be real. You're a college coach. So a roster of 40, 50 guys. I can't imagine everyone's a great teammate. Um, could you give me maybe an example or two of um, someone being a below standard teammate or a conversation you've had to have to straighten someone out?
2: Yeah, I think the word "standard" is a is a good one. Um, I think you have to give guys standards to say, okay, like this is this is like to get in the door. This is the price you have to pay, whether it's a GPA standard, social standards, um, you know, workout standards, and just say this is the price of admission. And if you have guys in your team that just repeatedly um, don't live up to the standard. It's very apparent. Um, It's easy to pick out. And those are conversations that need to happen right then and there. The longer it goes on, the harder it is to break someone of that habit um, and get them to buy in. So you hope you have a culture in place where their teammates see it maybe before the coaches and they might say something, whether it's socially on the weekends, whether it's, you know, skipping class. Uh, A lot of these guys live together, right? So they know if their roommate got up early enough to get to their lift time or, um, getting that extra workout on the weekend and you hope that your guys police it a little bit first, but when it comes right sure. down to it, if you want to set standards and you don't hold people accountable to them, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have really have a leg to stand on. Cause if, if Johnny got away with it all fall and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, somebody else does it in the spring and you come down really hard on him, he's going to look back at you and say, well, you let him get away with it all fall. Why is it all of a sudden me that's getting in trouble for it? So, um, you know, those aren't easy conversations to have, but you have to have them. You have to be, uh, strict, you have to be stern and you have to say, you either live up to the standard or we're going to go in a different direction. And And that could mean you're no longer going to be a part of this team because like every team, it, whether it's your family, whether it's, uh, you know, a sport team, you know, whether it's business, it's a privilege to be on a team. So you got to live up to the standards that are in place in order to, to be a part of it. I think I,
0: Founding guys. There were good teammates. There were guys who learned to be good teammates. There were guys who naturally were good teammates. There were guys who learned to be good teammates. There were guys who just couldn't, but they hung on and the team kind of just tied them to the top of the energy bus and took you along. And then there mm. were just guys who needed to move on, right? They just, had, they just couldn't do it and they had to go. Would you agree with that? There's natural guys who were good teammates, guys who kind of figured out, guys who hang on, but everybody knows they're not really buying in. And then just those who we have to cut bait and move on from as coaches.
2: Yeah. And I think that um, in a lot of cases, those guys make those decisions pretty easy. Um, It's hard to do as a coach, but if they repeatedly just look right back at your face and say, yep, yep, yep. I'm living up to the standards. And you know, the second you turn your back, they go in the opposite direction and they're starting to affect the guys around them. That's something that needs to be dealt with. And, you know, to the point where we've had guys in the past that will come into the office and say, coach, like, I'm this guy's roommate, we're classmates, but he's got to go. Like, mm-hmm. he's doing yeah. things, saying things, uh, his work ethic, whatever it is, he can't be on this team anymore. And when you are when you have a culture in place like that where your your teammates and your players are coming to you and saying – or your leaders are saying, Coach, uh, nothing for nothing, but this guy's got to go because he doesn't meet the standards we all have in place. Uh, you have to make that move. And, again, it's not easy to do, especially when you recruit – kids and families to a program and they're there for two years maybe and all of a sudden they're not buying in you say I'm sorry but you're no you won't you don't deserve to be on this team anymore and uh, if that's the case you gotta you got to cut bait and move um, I think you're right though there's guys that just they could never play a minute their whole career and they just want to be a part of it they want to be a, an energy guy and they want to just be a part of the team and um, do whatever it takes there's a bunch of those guys too and those guys are, are just as important to have there even though they may never score a goal or never make a save or never win a face off, you got to have those guys either bring uh, just energy and excitement to whatever role they have. Um, and those guys, you got to, you got to have as well. Yeah. I love those guys at practice. I love
0: those guys on the sideline in big games and I, boy, do I trust them in the locker room? hundred percent.
1: Awesome. Great job there, coach. I think a ton to chew on for all of our listeners. We're going to move on to our guest round table section of the show. And we're going to start firing questions at you. How's that sound? Sounds great. Uh, Coach Turner, tell our listeners a little bit more about your upbringing, youth lacrosse, from little guy lacrosse on to high school, college, and where it took you.
2: Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I didn't start playing lacrosse until I was like in sixth grade. Um, You know, we did a couple clinics when we were younger, but it just wasn't that big where I grew up and then once I started playing I had such a love for it that I knew I was going to continue to play this sport you know throughout the rest of my high school career and and you know eventually maybe into college and and I didn't really know if I was going to be able to play in college until I got kind of later in my career and my high school coach at the time Charlie Birch said you know if if you're considering playing in college you probably could if you really want to and uh Around that time, I was definitely more focused on playing college football, um, probably more so than lacrosse. I had lacrosse kind of on the back burner of if it's an option, great. But I was really kind of taking visits for playing Division three football. And that was really my kind of number one sport at the time. Yeah. Um, and then again, going back to your mentors, you know, Nick Myers was a guy that um, when I was a junior in high school, he was a freshman at Springfield College. And, um, you know, he was playing lacrosse only. Um, but I'm kind of looking at it where my high school football coach went to Springfield, who was a great mentor of mine. Nick was there. I have Charlie Birch, who's Nick's stepfather saying, you could probably play division three lacrosse if you wanted to, based on what I know, and what I'm seeing. Um, why don't you take a look at Springfield? And sure enough, one thing leads to another. And I went down there on a football visit and then I went down there in a separate lacrosse visit and really liked both coaches and had an opportunity to do both um, going there. And that was kind of the plan. And then, I uh, right before going to Springfield, I separated my shoulder. I separated in hockey my senior year and I separated again, really um, pretty badly um, playing summer pickup lacrosse, just screwing around my buddies and football camp is rolling around. And I'm like, I just don't think I can play. Um, So I went to Springfield, started classes, um, didn't didn't play football my freshman year. Um, you know, fall across was about to start. So I'm like, you know what, I'll just go out and if I can do it, I'll do it. I'll start to play fall across and then school piles up. And I was playing like screwing around playing club hockey with another buddy that was down there. And, you know, I'm practicing at, you know, 10 o'clock at night for hockey and then 6am for lacrosse and a couple of weeks go by and I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. So I'm like, I'm just going to play lacrosse. I'm going to put all my energy into that. Um, And thank God I did. I mean, it really has propelled my career, to where I am right now. I mean, if you know anything about Springfield, um, you know there's this slogan for the Springfield Mafia, and and a, a lot of guys that played in that program for Coach Bugby have gone on to become college coaches. Um, and I could name guys that were either players there or did a grad stint there that are now um, Division three, Division one uh, coaches, Division two coaches, high school coaches, and it just kind of gave me the bug when I was there to say, you know what, I think this is going to be a path that I'm going to continue to stay on. And that, that leads me to names like obviously Nick Myers um, you know, you got Frank Federaca, you got Jason Miller, you got John Klepacki, you got uh, Sean Quirk, you got guys all over the place that played or coached at Springfield at one point or another that are now out in, in co- coaching in college across. And I've kind of followed that path and, and coach Bugby was kind of the, you know, the facilitator of all of it because he just kept, you know, kind of pushing us into coaching Um, I was really fortunate to get a grad assistant with him after my playing career. And that's where it all began. We talk about the friends and the people along our journey. And you mentioned
0: Nick Myers and of course his brother, Pat Myers. I saw firsthand the special friendship and bond. The three of you had, as I was the fourth wheel on the side, but it was so great (laughs) to watch you guys because you could tell like, these are lifetime friends and that all three of you have gone on to be collegiate coaches and head coaches is amazing. Do you feel the same way? You look at two brothers who are your good friends, you coach USA together, and the three of you all go on to make this your career.
2: Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we're, I would consider those guys brothers. Like we've been in each other's weddings. Um, I played with Nick for two years in high school, two years in college, Pat and I were football lacrosse teammates all four years of high school. Uh, we made it a point every time we came back from college to get together um, we started getting into coaching at the same time. So we were all working the same peak 200 camps, battle of the hotbeds. We started a club team in Maine. Um, we just spent every chance that we could together as we got into our coaching profession. Um, Nick was actually supposed to come back to Springfield with me. and We were going to get into it together after he volunteered at Ohio State. And he then got an opportunity to go to Butler and uh, and didn't come back. But that was the original plan. We were going to start my coaching career and, and his grad career um, at Springfield together. And, you know, at one point in time, I'm at Penn state, Nick's at Ohio state and Pat's at UPenn. And we're playing against each other Mm -hmm. and like these heated rivalry games. And we're all from the same little town in Southern Maine. And it's, it was just pretty wild to see that we all kind of got to that same point in our career. Um, and then obviously the USA thing was just, you know, one of the most unique and special things to ever be a part of, because like you said, it's like doing it with your, your brothers, you know, like someone you knew from, your, your you know youth in high school, that's your best friend still in the same profession you are. Now all of a sudden you're coaching this all-star team together and competing for a world championship. I mean, it's it's a pretty, pretty wild story. And I was just super uh, thankful and, and proud to be a part of it. So if that's one of the highlights, let's go back to
0: how do you start? How did you get into it and decide, I'm going to be a college coach? I mean, you graduate from college like any of us and say, <laughs> I could do anything. And next thing you know, you're coaching.
2: Well, it's funny. Um, I was in sports management, so I was thinking like sports marketing, maybe an agent, something along those lines. And I'm kind of like halfway through the spring of my senior year, and you know I had a pretty co- close relationship with Coach Bugby and the assistant coaches at the time. And you know I'm kind of winding down my career, and I'm like, geez, what am I gonna do? And Coach Bugby at that time asked me to join his staff as a GA, and he's like, you think you can handle that? Because like you know you're a senior. You're, you're playing on the team. You're you're hanging out with the guys on the weekends. And all of a sudden, the next fall, you're their coach. Um, and I said, Coach, honestly, I really think I can. I think I can step back and say, I'm no longer a player on this team. I'm not going to be hanging around you guys socially. I'm going to separate myself and, and try to be as professional as I can uh, to become a coach. And I'd watched the GAs do this prior to to me, like a John Klopaki, um, you know, a Jason Miller who had recruited me. Um, and I saw that those guys were now like, climbing the ladder of college coaching and I said you know what I'll give it two years I love coach Bugby. I mean worst case scenario I get to stay in Springfield for two more years and figure out if this is for me Um, they cover your master's degree which is you know a no-brainer and maybe I leave with a master's and think all right this isn't for me and I get to another career and then literally within a week of each other I graduate grad school I get the job at Wheaton and I'm like 24 years old and they offer me a job paying me like 35 grand a year. And I'm like, I struck it rich. You know, I got a <laughs> you know, making 35 grand a year and I'm 24 years old and single. I, I think I'm like, you know, the man <laughs> and uh, it all literally just fell together. So I took the Wheaton job and, you know, everyone always asks me like, what's the, one of the biggest things you've learned in your coaching career. And it was that right there that I was not ready to be a head coach. Um, I just wasn't, I, you know, I, I knew what Springfield was all about. I coached there for two years. So I really only saw one style of coaching and play, systems, all that. And then all of a sudden you go to a new program that was in our league. So I knew what Wheaton was all about. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to turn this program into Springfield. And that just wasn't going to happen at that place. Um, but yeah, that's how I got into it. And uh, you know, that was a that was a challenging two years. And then once the the opportunity at Brian came along with Coach Pressler, that that's what really solidified it for me because to go down and interview with him it was on the heels of the duke scandal and he had just finished year one at bryant um and to sit there and, and one-on-one interview at a, a local uh you know watering hole <laughs> that's where we did it and to have him offer me the job i'm like okay i'm gonna stay in this this profession and now i have a mentor that i can really uh learn from and, and that was a big part of me staying and coaching um, you know and that's 15 years ago so that's kind of how it all came to
0: But besides the Wheaton reflection, you look at Bryant, Penn State, Gettysburg, any two or three pitfalls where y'all learned even more or just as much along the way?
2: I think my biggest, the thing I've learned the most is, is, um, how to be open-minded. Um, I probably learned this the most with coach Tambroni. Um, you know, you always think you're right and you always, you know, dig your heels in when you think there's only one way to skin a cat. And it's like, this is how I've always done it. I know it works. And I'm not going to think of doing it any other way. Um, and when someone challenges that and presents an idea that maybe is more, you know, maybe more successful or maybe makes a little bit more sense, um, sometimes that's hard to swallow. Um, and, and that's probably in everything in life when you really feel passionate about something, and you're just not willing to change your ways. Um, I probably that that's probably one of my biggest pitfalls in my coaching career is just being a little bit stubborn um, and not being as open minded in that that comes to coaching. That comes to recruiting philosophy. That comes to how to recruit. Um, you can always learn, and you can you can you can always think you know everything, but but you definitely don't. And you can always learn something from somebody else. And I've definitely become more open minded over time throughout my career, and it's definitely helped me uh, as a coach. I mean, even learning from the USA experience, you know, things that Nick or Pat might say, I might disagree with. But I learned a lot through that process because it got you thinking a different way about a, a different way of doing something. So you just got to be willing to actually open up and and take someone else's criticism and and then, you know, either, either change or adapt or uh, do what you're doing better than what you're doing. Because they wouldn't be criticizing if it was working, most likely. <laughs> yeah, I share
0: that with you. I was with some young coaches and we were talking about inverting. And the one young guy just was set like he had it. And yeah. it, was, it was hard for me as an older guy now to not say, no, you don't, no, you don't. I tried to ask questions and say, well, you know, if we had Cottle here and, and we had Tambroni here, running in the invert could be done five, six, seven different ways.
2: There's oh, yeah. other ways to do this. yeah
0: what, Do you want to hear them or not? <laughs>
2: you, you got it down in <laughs> and- practice. Um, there's so much more that goes into being a head coach and I just was not ready. And uh, I learned that. And luckily I, I got the chance to have Coach Pressler as a mentor and he really opened my eyes to being like, wow, there's a whole nother level of thinking, coaching strategy that I've never even heard of, let alone taught. So I'm glad I had that experience.
0: Yeah. My lesson with you guys was the opposite. I had never been an assistant. Right. I was young. I get a job at LaSalle. I'm the guy. We have great assistants. We have great kids. And I realized I didn't know how to do that. So the like, coach, no
2: call and timeouts, whatever you want.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was our team psychologist who said you sacrifice and you serve. That's what you do as an assistant and you listen
1: and you help. Coach moving from, Bri- from Bryant with your time with coach Pressler onto Penn state with coach Tambroni. Um, I'm sure you could tell us a lot about kind of the man and the influence, but I'm really most interested in the systems um, that you guys used at Penn state and really your rise there. And, I would give you a lot of credit and the work you did on the recruiting trails. So from recruiting to systems uh, to Coach Tambroni and and your time spent at Penn State, was it 12
2: years? Uh, 11. 11 so, years. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that that I would say about Coach is he's, he's absolutely a tactician when it comes to X's and O's, um, how to play the game. There was always like how – why when who um there was never like a gray area and i think that probably goes back to his west jenny days i know he worked for coach Cottle for a little bit um you know certainly his time at cornell and then to penn state you always had to have a reason why and you had to be able to explain it to the guys you know with simplicity and it had to make sense so there was never a moment where it was like well well, what about this? And it was like, uh, we'll just figure it out. You know what I mean? There was yeah. never that moment. So, um, I think that's one of the things I took away from my time there. He's, he's an extremely, um, you know, tactical, offensive mind, defensive mind, clearing mind, uh, riding faceoffs. Like everything had to make sense. And if it didn't make sense, we be- we better figure out a way for it to make sense and how we should align the guys, what they should say, why they should say it, and then how to execute it. And if you couldn't do that, it probably wasn't going to fly. Um, you know, the the recruiting aspect of it, there's no doubt um, in the early years we recruited some really talented kids, but we recruited them more so on talent than we did character. Um, and that's not every kid, but I can tell you right now, there's three or four guys that – and Coach Tambroni would admit this to, as well today – if we could not have had them on our team um, – And not had their talent we would have been okay with that um we definitely looked around when we first got there and said man we need some talent on this roster if we're going to win with the schedule that we have back then it was Notre Dame Ohio State Loyola um, CAA like we need talent and we probably we definitely took some kids that were some of the most talented players in the country that had major red flags Um, from a character standpoint and we made some mistakes there. And that kind of bit us a little bit um, really for like a couple of years um, until we really removed those kids from the program where they removed themselves like that, that, that hung around for a while. And that probably didn't change until like the grant amen class showed up as freshmen, which is, I think they were like the high school 2015 class. Um, But you had like guys like grant amen, Chris Sabia, Kevin Hill, um, there's a number of them, like I can go down the list, Tommy Wright, that ended up being some of our best players, but they were also some of our best culture guys. Like they really changed our talent level, but they also changed our culture. Um, and they were led by a group of guys that we recruited during the, the Sandusky time. So that all went on and, and no one wanted to touch Penn State with a 10-foot pole. So we, what do we end up with? Pennsylvania kids. And those kids weren't the best players in Pennsylvania. They were Penn state kids that worked really hard that believed in Penn state, regardless of what was going on there within the football program. And they committed to us and they eventually as seniors, um, kind of led that shift. Like they were the seniors when Amet and those guys were the freshmen and that kind of combination of the two, um, You know, that was the changing point, in my opinion. Um, And then behind the amen class was the O'Keefe class. So you got O'Keefe, you've got Gerard Arsari, you've got Colby Kniss, Nick Cardio. Like now you continue the talent and the culture has shifted. And then it really took off to a point where three years later, we're in the final four. And had we not run into Yale, who knows? We might have won that year. Um, That was our kryptonite, unfortunately. We lost two games and then both to Yale. Um, But yeah, I really credit that. Uh, that that kind of shift in time to that to that success we had in 2019. You guys had some real
0: struggles. You don't think about that at Penn State, and you just walked us right through them to one major highlight, the Final Four. But how about some other highlights of your 11 years at Happy Valley?
2: Well, I'd have to say, you know, of course, getting married and having three kids and all that mm-hmm. was a huge highlight. I mean, I went out there as a, a single guy, but I was dating. And then my wife and I got married. And then, you know, we've had all three of our sons in State College. Um, So to really kind of start your family in a place, um, you know, it made it incredibly challenging to leave. Um, The relationships that I've built with the guys that we've recruited, um, you know, certainly there's guys that we coached but didn't recruit. Guys like Austin Cout and Tommy LaCrosse and guys that were freshmen. when We walked in the door. Are still some of my all-time favorites, Gavin Ahern. I can go down the line there. And then there's all these guys that were recruited after that, that are now getting married, having babies, like in the relationship that is still there with those guys, um, is pretty, is pretty important. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about relationships and we spent a lot of time with each other. We spent a lot of time bringing those guys back after they graduate and staying in communication and making efforts to see them even after they're gone. And, uh, you know, all those guys will, will always be some of my favorite players of all time because of the relationships that we built. Um, so I would say, I would say those are some of the fondest memories I've had there. I mean, obviously winning certain years, winning certain games, that was all great, but at the end of the day, it'll come down to, you know, the relationships that we built, the journey that we had, um, knowing that, in 25 years, I'll be able to pick up the phone and call Chris Xavier, Grant Amen, and they'll pick the phone up. You know, I, I know that that'll be the case. Um, and, and, you know, my kids have had the opportunity to meet those guys and develop relationships with those guys, which is extremely um, rewarding. You know, they all have the, the PLL jerseys and, and they know those guys, uh, you know, with and without a helmet on. And that's uh, that's been a really re- rewarding part of the whole experience out there.
0: I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about our journey with the USA team. You know, looking back, we're down six, a whole lot in the gold medal game. All of a sudden that Canadian team is not the same team we had beaten earlier in the tournament. What was going through your mind as defensive coordinator when it's what? Six, one, seven, two, we're down early in the first quarter. Thank God they were long quarters and long games, right? But what was going through your mind when the wheels were just off the bus early?
2: That's such a tough situation to be in like I've been in it a, a few different times in my career like that helpless fear feeling when you're like no matter what we're doing it's not working and we game plan and we had this vision of what we thought it was going to look like and it just isn't working and I've had this happen to me as a coach and it's it's probably the most helpless feeling you could ever have because you really you really can't change it sometimes i mean it happened to us against yale in the final four like you look up and it's like 11 to 1 you know what i mean it happened when we played against uh, Drexel one year, I remember we're down like 12 to two at halftime and they, everything they did worked and everything we did, didn't, um, you try to, you try to stay calm. You try to, you know, just say, guys make the next play. You try not to put any more pressure on the situation that there is. Um, and you try, try to just encourage one guy to make one play and chip away at it. And luckily we were able to do that. I mean, you know, if Henningsen didn't start winning all those face-offs, who knows what that game would have looked like, but he did. I mean, he just started dominating at the X and we were able to score one goal at a time and then go back on offense, not play a lot of defense. And before you knew it, we clawed our way back in and had a chance to win, but any good team's going to be able to do that. Right. The complementary aspect of team sports. It's like, you know, that day our face-off unit, our offense, you know, carried us to a victory and it certainly wasn't based on the defense we were playing. So, uh, those are helpless moments, and sometimes you wish you could change them, but you just can't. So, I
0: was watching the highlights the other day, and you're right. It was one goal at a time, and all of a sudden it's not 7-2. It's 8-4, and you're like, yeah. I think we're kind of still in it. Yeah. And then you're in the fourth quarter, and <laughs> O'Keefe hits a big one, and Bernhardt's veins are ice, and he has the ball on the wing. And next thing you know, Ryan Conrad's winning it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and the elation, I can remember this, all of us, with that final whistle blew, like – just the, re- the like the relief, the sigh of relief, the the just elation of like the water getting dumped on you. And we're all hugging and soaking wet. and It was just like, we did it. Like it was just like, oh, my God, we actually pulled this off because every other game was so easy. And it was like, oh, this is going to happen. Of course it's going to happen. <laughs> then before you know it, you're like, we're going to lose this game and all the work that we put into it. I mean, you remember how long those camps were and you're there for. You know, 12 hour days trying to pick the team and then you're trying to talk it through as a staff and you're getting everybody's opinions. And it's like, who are we keeping? Is it are we keeping grand amen? Or are we not keeping Grant amen? Are we keeping Sowers? Or are we keeping Bernhardt? You know what I mean? It's like it's crazy. But uh yeah, that that final whistle was a, a feeling that you wish you had more often, um, winning a championship, right? So yeah.
0: I couldn't figure out exactly why I was crying. I knew we had won. I knew that I was kneeling at the box. I knew I was looking at all of you, jump up and down. Then you look across at all of our families, and you're like, I'm crying for a whole
1: lot of reasons right here. It was unreal. It
0: was was unreal.
1: unreal. So from then to now, uh, you're now the head coach at D3 Gettysburg. Um, You're filling some pretty big shoes there for Hank Janzik, who was there for 34 years. He actually recruited me back when I was in high school and probably – uh some other some other coaches that are listening I think he has the second most wins in NCAA lacrosse history so tell us about your mindset filling those shoes and how are things going so far at Gettysburg
2: yeah those are some big shoes there's no doubt about it and uh you know I've said it to parents alumni our team if you expect me to be the next Hank Jancic that is not happening so I'm not gonna be coaching here until I'm 74 years old so we'll just start there um you Coach did an amazing job, um, so consistent for so long. Um, again, I have a ton of respect for him. I, I know that my college coach, Coach Bugby, and he were very close. They're both guys that have coached 35 to 40 years at the Division three level, and to be able to do that I think is just amazing, um, that you can dedicate that much of your time um, to your guys, away from your family, and to be that consistent um, is something I'll continue to strive to, strive to do. Um it's a, obviously a tradition-rich program that has um, had a certain standard of winning for a very long time, and my hope is that that standard continues. Um, I know the guys are extremely hungry. I mean, this is a group of guys that went to a top five Division three program um, when they were recruited, and, and quite honestly, have only played 12 games in the last two years. Um, so you imagine taking all these competitors that want to play at a really high level um, and say, okay, we're going to take what you love the most away from you for the most part for, for two years. And I know that happened at a lot of programs in the country. Um, So I do think it's a, it's a hungry group. It's a group that hasn't um, necessarily accomplished much because they haven't had the opportunity to, or um, you know, just, just haven't had the chance. So I think we're all in the same boat where we're starting fresh and we're trying to build on the foundation that's been laid by coach and all his great assistant coaches and staffs over the years, um, I know I have the alumni support. Those guys have been great since day one. Um, I've got coach Jancic support. We've had lunch in town a couple of times. We talked to him. I talked to him probably once every you know, week to two weeks about various things. And, and he's, you know, he's still so invested and, and just wants the program to succeed. And that's, and that's really refreshing to, to, to have in place coming in as the the next head coach.
0: You're a couple months in any unique challenges so far you didn't expect.
2: Oh Yeah. Oh some- <laughs> <Hell> yeah! <laughs> no, um, like anything else. I mean, when you walk into a new program or a new job, I mean, you just have to get to know what's around you. So um, the division three model is just different. Um, you know, we were so used to, or I have been so used to at Penn state and spoiled by this. You have a head coach, you have a head assistant, you have a second assistant, you have a director of ops, you have a volunteer, you have a lot of hands on deck and that's the coach, you know, 50 guys. Um, You get to a division three program and and I kind of knew I was walking this a little bit, not to the extent that I probably did. I I had an assistant initially who got himself a head coaching job. So basically walking into the first day of being, um, you know, in charge of the program, it was just me, Um, no assistant coaches. And the timing of that probably couldn't have been worse. Um, It's mid-August, school's about to start, new head coach, this storied program um, coming off of COVID coming off of guys that opted out last year and, and weren't even around. And, and we're trying to hit the reset button a little bit. And it's like, okay, go get them. And you got 68 players on your team. So um, trying to manage fall ball with 68 guys by yourself was absolutely a challenge. I definitely drew back in my Springfield phys ed, uh, background there, um, to try to keep 68 guys moving at the same time. I mean, I was staggering practices where I'd have, you know, uh, just offense for a half an hour doing skill development and work. Then we would do a team practice. Then we would send the offense home and then we would do just face-offs and goalies for a little bit. And then we would do just defensive specific work. Um, so yeah, there was definitely some challenges there, but, um, nothing that, you know, is all that daunting? At the end of the day, we were able to get out on the field, um, which they didn't get to do a lot of last year. Um, I got to know the guys, which was which was uh, was great. That was really one of my most important steps. Um, I was able to finish out the recruiting for the 22 class, which went which I went think went really well. Um, you know, to, to build our first class and uh, you know just to just to tackle this thing head on and say, all right, this is the situation that we're dealt. Let's just deal with it one day at a time. Um, I have been able to hire both assistants, which is which is huge. Uh, Eric Holt has come over and joined me from Mount St. Mary's, and, uh, and Nick Cardiel is going to join me this spring, who just graduated from Penn State. So I'm pretty excited about that.
0: Well, they got the right guy, Coach. I have no doubt of your success. So let's bring this thing home. You ready for our rapid-fire next homework? Let's go! Where I'm going to ask you a little homework section for our players, parents, and coaches who are listening. Ready to roll? Yeah, let's do it. All right. What homework do you have for a, a player who's listening?
2: One thing I would say if I'm a player or would, would give to a, advice to a player is find creative ways to work on your game by yourself, because you're not always going to have a teammate around. You're not always going to have you know, a team practice to go to. But there's always an opportunity for you to, to get better at your own craft, whether it's wall ball shooting, um, you know, picking up ground balls find ways to actually get better versus make excuses of why you can't get better. I like it. Homework for a parent who's listening. Uh, for me, and I'm going through this right now and I'm trying to do this as long as I can, I would say encourage multiple sports if you can. Um, I think if you just hone in on one sport and that's all you do, it loses its excitement. It loses its luster. Uh, you see a, a, a son or daughter play the same thing over and over and over again. And inevitably, inevitably you're going to pick out some bad days and, uh, and that just, kind of takes the fun out of it so if it's a new season in the fall to the winter to the spring and it's a different sport it keeps it keeps it exciting for everybody um and you kind of hit the reset button and you're not so focused on just one sport all the time and whether or not you're playing a, the highest level every time you do it because that's the only thing that you do for a coach who's listening i would say continue to develop skills um i think a lot of coaches have kind of moved in a direction and this is you know, not a shot at anybody by any means, but everyone just wants to play. Let's let's just scrimmage and play. Um, continue to focus on developing the fundamentals of the game. Because at the end of the day, if you are able to, as a high school coach or a club coach, send your players to college, which is the goal for everybody, and they're very fundamentally sound, um, and not taking the next year or two to develop those skills, um, they'll probably enjoy their experience a lot more because they're focusing much more on development. The one-on-ones, the two-on-twos, the ground balls, um versus just playing and getting up and down and just wanting to scrimmage all the time. And lastly, as a person as a coach, what are you reading or listening to these days? I'm going to listen to this podcast uh, uh, <laughs> Well, I can't believe you got, you got Amen going before me. I mean, what's going on? I was I have to tell you, I was really People know who he is? I think they might know who he is. <laughs> um yeah, I, I mean, I'm not I should read more than I do. Um, I definitely have a couple favorites that I've I've honed in on. My wife's constantly getting me these books, and she's much better at it than I am. So when I have a few minutes, you know, before bed at night, I definitely try to pick something up. But uh, one of my favorites, and we use this a lot at Penn State. I've already used it here at Gettysburg. is is the the book Legacy. Um, talks about the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team. Um, there's so much to draw from just that book. You could read that book over and over and over again and the different mantras that that program has as the most successful sports organization in the world um, is pretty fascinating. So if you're going to get a book or pick something up, I would highly, highly recommend that. Um, You know, I've definitely read the hard hat, uh, the George priority story. I was very close to it with coach Tambroni. He told that story to our guys a lot. And I thought that gave us a lot of perspective and that would be another one about how to be a great teammate that I would highly recommend. Coach.
0: It's great that you were with us. You've been really good to me. Again, you're good to me. I'm grateful that you joined us, and um, your insights were just outstanding.
1: Yeah, to the sentiment of the All Blacks, I would say you you left it better than you found it tonight, Coach <laughs> Toner. Uh, it was a fun conversation, just kind of geeking out in lacrosse with you. Uh, these are the type of chats we just love to have. They make us better as coaches. Hopefully, our listening audience feels the same way, whether they're players, parents, or coaches want to thank you again for taking the time uh, away from your family to talk with us tonight. For next, we are heading into the box across scene this winter with both our boys and girls teams. Coach Leahy and I will be out there with Coach Manny, Coach Resch, Coach Lawrence, uh, telling the kids to bang the boards as soon as they get in and battling uh, with Penlax, Superstar, and some other awesome clubs that we see on the winter circuit. So, box lacrosse is coming next. Wanna thank everyone out there for listening. Thank you, Coach Toner. Thank you, Bill, our producer Justin, and Bar Luca for the awesome pizza. This is Coach Coop. We're signing off from Conchahawken. Thank you.
0: That's a wrap, Coach. You're the man. Thank you so much. Would you think you survived?